So, but I've got Dr. Brian Conway, who's a medical director of Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre, joining me to talk a bit about this and talk about the variants and talk about people not unwillingness to get vaccinated. Hello, Dr. Conway. Good morning. I know that was a long story, but I wanted you to hear that because I think it's something that, I mean, did you, did, does that story surprise you that, that that's happening? No, not at all. I think my main concern going forward is that people are thinking that COVID's going to go away. If we go forward and reopen all of uh, what we think is going to reopen on Labor Day, that that's the end of COVID. It's the end of the beginning. We're moving from pandemic COVID to endemic COVID. It's going to be around and stories such as you've just described mm-hmm. for Pierce Morgan are going to be very common. This variant is taking, you know, taking hold now, and as we see from the data that's coming out of BC, and yet we have people who are still unvaccinated, unwilling to get vaccinated. What, what can we guess is going to happen here in BC? What we need to do first is to give the second shots to all of those that got first shots. This is like uh, uh, people who are already committed to being vaccinated, and I have no concern that as long as we make it logistically feasible, they're going to get their second shot. So we're going to be at about 80%. We're going to be left with 20% of people who are unvaccinated. There are three kinds of people there. Those that if you make it easy for them to get vaccinated, no questions asked, they will get vaccinated. And that's why events like there was at Playland, these mm-hmm. vaxathons, these kinds of things are important. There are some that have questions that we can answer and they're going to get vaccinated. And there are some that are going to be very resistant. But at least if we get the first two groups, we're going to get over 90% and that will help us going forward with the variant. But we're seeing regionalization here across the province. We're seeing pockets of the province now uh, where there's an unwillingness, this resistance this, to, to get vaccinated. And it really could take hold in those areas as we see in certain communities across BC. And that seems to be where the stats are getting worse in, in the interiors specifically. Uh, could that, you know, if you use that as an example or a microcosm of what's perhaps happening not only in, in BC but around the world, does that make it potentially risky that we'll continue to have this virus around forever? Well, we're going to have it for a very long time. It's not going away. We're probably going to be talking about booster shots Mm -hmm. uh, going forward. I think Dr. Fauci in the United States about uh, 10 days ago was saying no to booster shots. This morning he said probably yes. So I think thinking is evolving on that. And I think we shouldn't assume that in the interior or small towns or anywhere else, it's people that are resistant. To, uh, to getting vaccinated. I think we may just not have given them the right chance. If we show up with a truck full of vaccine, my sense is a lot of them will just get vaccinated. A bunch will have questions that we will be able to answer and they'll get vaccinated. And then we will understand what we think is 5 to 7% of the population that are really very resistant to getting vaccinated. And if that's all we're left with, then we're probably going to be able to deal with things Uh, quite well as a society, and we can deal with these individuals and see how we can move them towards being part of the solution going forward. So I think that needs to be our strategy. Is it bravado a lot of the time for these some of these people that if they just make it easy or more potentially more subtle so that nobody knows they got it done, uh, is that sometimes what it is about? They're, I don't need a vaccine, I don't believe in it, and so they paint themselves into a corner? Absolutely, that is very common. And then if it just shows up and their buddies go get vaccinated, even they'll say, well, I'm just going because my buddies are going and I'm supporting them. I don't care why you get your shot. Just go ahead and, and get it. And and, there, and and we have an advantage over the Americans in that we haven't politicized this mm-hmm. to such an extent as they have. So being a Republican in the United States, it's almost a bad karma to get vaccinated. Here in Canada, we don't have that. Mm-hmm. And I think we should uh, we should go ahead and, 
and and uh, work on work on getting more people vaccinated in an innovative way. I think the Pierce Morgan story also was his attempt to remind people because he's got a lot of fans. He's you know sort of on the Trump side of this you know spectrum. Certainly politically over there, they have a lot of the same problems in this in UK as we're having in sort of in the interior here up the north of England. They are having real trouble getting people vaccinated. He's trying to communicate to people that that this is the risks of this. Is that perhaps is this a marketing effort that we need somebody of the level of Pierce Morgan in Canada? to really show uh, and, and say, it's okay, you can go get this done. And do we have somebody like that? Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think the more people we have that are perceived as being more on the conservative type side of the equation that are mm-hmm. out there saying that uh, they uh, everyone should be vaccinated, that'll help remove this sort of argument that uh, I'm of a certain political stripe, so I should probably not get vaccinated. That'll go a long way towards removing that argument. I agree with you. One of the things that I saw is the airports. So what's interesting is as we head into this, you know, new new normal uh, and, and traveling, people are buying tickets, flights are getting filled up. Uh, but when you go to, you go to the airport, there's a vaccinated line and a non-vaccinated line. How do you? How does that work? Because I'm thinking if I go with if I have a kid that's under 12, uh, they're not vaccinated. So which lineup do I go in? How how is that is that going to work? Is that how we're going to have to see this now? Is opposed you know the uh, passport lineups will be vaccinated, non-vaccinated. Airport lineups will see this division where where you're forced to be divided like this. I think so for the time being. Obviously, we're all hopeful that the vaccine will be approved for younger children and will be administered quickly when that is the case. But for now, I think that's a practical solution. It is reducing the risk of vaccinated people potentially being exposed to uh, to the virus. And if you're only around vaccinated people yourself, then uh, the risk is is minimal. And we've said that vaccinated people can do whatever they want pretty much with other vaccinated people. Mm-hmm. And if you have the children in that environment, then it's probably fine. But let's evolve towards the fact where the non-vaccinated line gets shorter and shorter and shorter going forward. We're seeing interesting approaches in the UK versus in France and New Germany. France and Germany are taking a very sort of approach to, we're not, you're not allowed to go to your cafe if you're not vaccinated. Sorry, uh, French people. Really, and, and, and when they did this, they saw a mass uptake. That suddenly lineups started going, oh, well, I can't go for my coffee. It's like, okay, well, I'm interested now. I mean, is that the kind of dramatic approach we might need to take? I think people will need to understand that there's consequences to not being vaccinated. We've known this for travel internationally. There are some countries where you cannot go unless you prove you're vaccinated against things like yellow fever, to take one example. You're free to not get vaccinated, but the consequences of that is you can't go to that country. Mm -hmm. So I think going forward in the era of COVID, in the in the endemic era of COVID that we're entering, that will also be part of the reality and people can make their own choices. All right, Dr. Conway, I appreciate you joining me this morning. Thank you very much for having me. So many of the major universities in the U.S. have made uh, vaccinations a condition to attend in-person classes. Here in B.C., it sounds like vaccinations will be encouraged but not mandatory, but the student unions would like to see that change, at least when it comes to people living in residence. Uh, Ashana Bangu is the Vice President of uh, Academic and University Affairs at the, and of the AMS a Senator serving on UBC's Vancouver, UBC Vancouver Senate, uh, and she joins me now. Hello. Hi, good morning. Th- Thank th- you for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So it's, de- it's demanding and asking for this kind of, uh, you know, rules, sort of the new counterculture at universities, so it seems to go against the freedom of university. 
Well, um, I don't know about it going against the freedom of university. I think UBC just needs to do more when it comes to ensuring the safety and security of our community. And we do see a lot of Eastern universities leading in this area, whether it's University of Toronto, mm-hmm. Western University, Waterloo, University of Ottawa, Ryerson, just to name a few. They've all taken the extra measures to mandate vaccines in student residences. And we, so we do have precedents to follow with these. And you've, and you've basically, the study says that students seem to like this idea based on what your polling says. Yeah, we conducted an AMS return to campus survey to which mm-hmm. we had around 8,000 students respond. And 82% of those who have plans to live in student residences say that they would be in support of this. And additionally, over 60% are concerned about getting COVID in classroom or lecture hall specifically. So there's a need for not just vaccines being mandated in student residences, but also extra measures like mandating masks in large lecture halls. That's interesting. And and what's the response of when you're talking to to the school's administration? What are they saying when you present this data? Well, they have been deferring to um, the return to campus guidelines that were put out by the province that Mm -hmm. recommends that universities and post-secondary institutions don't do anything other than what the PHO advises. But I think the key word over there is recommends. It's only a recommendation. So Mm -hmm. it's not like UBC's hands are tied. So you're going to pressure them to, to, to change that rule and to be more strict? Well, we're not, I mean, it's, the idea isn't to pressure. The idea is to, you know, really represent and fight for what students want. <clears throat> How, Our job as a student union yeah. is exactly that, right? Right. To represent them. And there's just one resounding message that we're hearing from students at the AMS, that UBC needs to do more. So it, that's just our point to get that across. It's funny, though. It seems the opposite to what you hear, certainly in the States, with students who seem to be much more... Uh, loose about these things that they were went back last year and there was you didn't see a lot of masks at universities is this a canadian thing is it a is it a mentality that we have up here that we're more open to being masked up and and more careful well yeah i I guess the sentiment among students is that there's no need to take unnecessary risks for example something like wearing a mask is low cost Mm -hmm. and you know with the delta variant on the rise with so many people coming in from different places um it's just better to be safe than sorry how would you propose that this campus um, police this, if they do go with it? Well, I guess um, I'd like to say that, you know, the logistics, the burden of the logistics should really be on the institution with, mm-hmm. like, $3 billion budget. Um, our job is really to represent what students want, and uh, I'm sure the university has shown leadership in the past. They mandated masks a month before the PHO did in 2020. So a university of UBC's caliber and, quite frankly, non parallel membership should have no problem um, implementing these easy and reasonable um, steps that we're asking for. You, this has been obviously a, a, a crazy year and a half, um, and especially for students. You know, I've got kids who are in, in elementary school, and, you know, it's the, the, the chaos of this last year and a half. But university students have faced a lot of different things. How, how has it been for you working with students and, and being around students, Uh, this past year and a half, and and, and maybe that feeds into why you're seeing this kind of data. Yeah, um, I will say the virtual learning environment wasn't great for a lot of students, as Mm -hmm. I think about every student around the world could agree to that. But coming back to campus, they're just not confident that the university is um, doing enough to ensure that they can have a safe learning experience. 
because, of course, people are excited to be back and socialize, but at the same time, there are anxieties. Less than a third, or just about a third of students said that they're confident in the current UBC return to campus plans. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something really on top of mind for students right now. The anxiety is a whole other issue. And how does the union, uh, your student unions and, and the organizations want to help with students on the anxiety? Because we, we know that's happening everywhere. Uh, as we as we get back to whatever the new normal is, the anxiety of that is quite high. And, and also the impact of what's happened over the last year. How does the How are you guys uh, dealing with that? Well, you know, we're always open to speaking with students, but we're not professionals. Mm-hmm. We do have a um, service that the AMS provides, peer support, which is open to all students to just come in, kind of like a low at, low barrier um, first step if they need to speak to someone. Um, apart from that, I guess, we are trying to work to address their very reasonable anxieties and concerns. I think something we've been hearing is students just don't want to be sitting side by side in packed 300, 400 people lecture halls right. without masks. And if I'm being honest with you, faculty don't feel safe teaching in them either. So you, the, the, there's a double reason for the administration to follow this rule and to even push it perhaps even further than you're asking, because you're only asking for residents. This is not a mandatory on every single corner of the campus, uh, is it? Yeah, no, we're not asking for, you know, ma- uh, sorry, vaccines to be mandated UBC-wide. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just asking vaccines be mandated in student residences and masks be mandated in lecture halls and classroom settings. Why not go and- that step further? Why not just say, you know what? Can't, let's push this. Let's put, you know, the interview we had before the break, we're seeing this pushback, uh, a certain percentage of people who are unwilling to get vaccinated. Um, if, if we were to start mandating it and, and campuses were to mandate it, we mandate, you know, when you go to school, a regular uh, elementary school and daycares, they require vaccinations previously to, to, to COVID. Uh, is it something that you guys considered? Right. We Well, of course, we considered all options, but mm-hmm. I think, I'm sure you're aware, UBC has shown us quite the resistance, mm-hmm. even with these kind of asks. So, you know, you can call these baby steps that are reasonable <laughs> for university to accomplish. Was your polling, your data showing that the students were also, though, open to more strict guidelines all around? Yeah, they, um, you know, I think the lack of confidence or less than half of the people being confident in the current return to campus plan speaks volumes for itself. As well, um, you know, you you spoke about mandated vaccines. I will point out that the 82% figure, those are people who were informed that there are no mandatory vaccines in all of Canada. And still, they're, they're asking for this. So I would say that, you know, there's, um, there's a reverberant message that's across the community and not just students, but faculty and even staff members have shown support. So the community has shown that this is something they deeply care about and are united on. So, you know, right now in parts of the U.S., the vaccination rate is as low as 35%, which means that uh, COVID is surging again in some communities. Here in B.C., we saw 112 cases on Friday, our highest day in over a month. We'll get the numbers later today for the full weekend. In some parts of B.C., vaccinations hovering around, you know, 60%, and as it seemingly, it seemingly kind of seems to have plateaued. What can we learn from our neighbors south of the border about what a low vaccination rate can mean for our community? Our next guest talked about her community in Arkansas in her piece for The Atlantic, My Community Refuses to Get Vaccinated, Now Delta is Here. And that's what the column is uh, called. Her name's Monica Potts, and she's a writer in Arkansas, and she joins me now. Hi, Monica. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. A really great piece. I really enjoyed it. And I want to tell, tell me a bit about how things are down there, because, you know, when I read that piece, I'm like, whoa, it's indifferent. Yeah. Well, um, well, 
One of the things that's happening is that cases are shooting up pretty rapidly. Just to put things in perspective, Arkansas is a very rural, small state, and so we have about 3 million people spread out over a pretty large Mm -hmm. area. But each county is seeing their numbers increase by pretty substantial amounts, and the state is adding thousands of cases a day. Some of the hospitals are saying that they're full. Some of the counties are saying that their ambulance services are slower because Um, they're having to wait at hospitals because there's no hospital beds available. So, you know, even people with heart attacks or car accidents are, you know, potentially going to suffer from longer wait times. And so, you know, that kind of creates a sense on the ground that things are at an emergency state. Um, Vaccinations are ticking up a little bit more Mm -hmm. than they have been in the past, but it's a little, it's a little too little too late. It's a lot like um, what it was a year ago. I mean, it's like back to the future. I think it's even worse than it was last summer because right. we are um, more things are open. People are going inside to more places like churches and mm-hmm. camps and community centers. So right, because they feel worse, yeah. confident that they have some people have the vaccine. So oh, we'll just get out there and do that. And as we learned earlier, you can still catch COVID even if you have the, uh, the vaccine. Where where are you exactly, and and what's it like in in your in your community? Well, I'm in a small town called Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about an hour and a half north of Little Rock, and it's in, on the southern edge of the Ozark Mountains. And normally our community is pretty, um, it's really small. The places to gather are primarily church and school. There aren't a lot of other places you can go be in a building with people. And I think that that kind of remoteness and isolation and atomization had saved us a bit during hmm. the first wave. But now with things open, people going around without mm-hmm. masks, the infection spreading so easily and quickly with the presence of the Delta variant, you know, it, things are riskier than they were. If you go to a restaurant, there's a good chance you're going to end up sick if you're unvaccinated. Yeah, it's interesting because seeing similar things here where we're in the big city, it seems like things are under control. But now as you work your way to smaller towns uh, across our province, it gets uh, you're seeing spikes happening. Did you expect uh, this kind of hesitancy there for the vaccine? I didn't expect this deep hesitancy, Hmm. Um, and I think it's for a few different reasons. I knew that there was a population that was pretty substantial that was going to say no to the vaccine no matter what, and I knew that from polls in advance Mm -hmm. because of the political divisions here. This is a very politically conservative, Trump-loving place, Mm -hmm. Um, but honestly, I expected vaccination rates to hit 50 to 60 percent, but we hit 30 percent pretty quickly up, you know, from uh, the winter up to the early spring, and then we stalled at around 30% for months. That was a surprise to me. And I think it's because there is another population that isn't against the vaccines, but literally hesitant. They are unsure about the vaccines, and they hear bad things from their friends. And so they there isn't a countervailing force to convince them to, to get the vaccines. State and local leadership isn't pushing the vaccines and saying you should do this and they're not going out into very rural areas with mobile vaccination units and some local doctors aren't promoting the vaccines and so there is sort of only a force saying these vaccines are bad you shouldn't get them and not another force saying actually that's incorrect you should get them they could save the lives of you and your family Um, and so I think that there's a big proportion of people I didn't expect not getting the vaccine just because they haven't gotten around to it yet. They haven't had some of their concerns answered Mm -hmm. and they haven't had the opportunity to come into a population center to get vaccinated. You talk about in the article um, about those who are trying to champion vaccines and vaccinations and they got frustrated and they just sort of gave up or what, you know, what happened to the, what, what, what was that process? 
Well, there's a, there is a population of people you are not going to be able to convince to get mm-hmm. the vaccine. Um, they believe that the vaccines were approved too quickly. The fact that the FDA approved them only on an emergency basis is somehow suspicious. The fact that the government, and especially now that Democrats are in power nationally, are promoting them is somehow suspicious. There's some sort of political ulterior motive involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and their justification keeps shifting. So you mm-hmm. can allay certain fears and you can describe the process of the development of mRNA vaccines, for example. But they will find a new reason to oppose the vaccines. And that population is, is a substantial and very vocal minority of people here. And it's hard to, you're not going to get anywhere with them. I think that's what most of us have decided. The politics you talk about, the division, we we see this reported to us. But when you're on the ground and you're living there and, and you see your community divided, especially in smaller towns or wherever you go and, and as a writer, you know, that, that's got to be frustrating because up here it's not, it's not so pol- it's not so political. It's more you know f- fighting over you know whether you're anti-vax or whatever. But it's not necessarily political. But down there, you see that division. What's it like? Um, it's really difficult actually because um, I I'm, I live in the town I grew up in, and I um, grew up and went to college and went away, and I became a journalist because I wanted people to have access to the truth and to information, and I wanted to. Um, gather information and convey it in a way that people would understand and believe. That was my mission in my early career life. And so this is a a longer standing problem than just right now with COVID. It goes back to before Trump, but President Donald Trump really perfected this um, sort of questioning of the truth, questioning of facts, creating alternative facts, and questioning sources of authority and sources of knowledge. That's an old trend, and it's really solidified in the past few years, and I think we're seeing the full damage it can really do with COVID and the reluctance to sort of understand and process new scientific information when it's really critical to our well-being. Um, It's frustrating to try to communicate as best as we can what scientists know what they don't know what Mm -hmm. they're trying to learn and what they tell us is the best way to protect ourselves and to have people refuse to believe that no matter what and you know they're not stupid people they're not uneducated people they're not they have all of the abilities to understand that i do Mm -hmm. but they don't want to it's a it's a political decision to not accept those things as fact and as the reality that's a very frustrating place to be in and it's one that i personally don't know how to solve and i don't know if we as a as a country know how to solve it's a potential generational problem it could take another 20 years to reverse that kind of skepticism and and distrust and and all of this uh that's the challenge what advice would you give us up here you know based on on, on certainly on the people who are hesitant on the people who are hesitant i think that the best thing to do is to remove all the barriers that you can to getting vaccinated. So if people have to go into a center of their own volition to get the vaccine, then they'll find a million reasons to put it off, especially if they have other Mm -hmm. challenges in their life, like mobility challenges or Mm -hmm. monetary challenges or challenges at their workplace and can't take off. I don't know if that's a bigger problem here, Mm -hmm. there as it is here. Um, But I've, I've decided that just going to people and meeting them where they are is the best way to overcome the people who can be swayed. Dan Kelly is with the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses and uh, he's the president and CEO of that organization. He joins me now. Hey, Dan. 
Hey, good to be with you. Yeah, thanks. Hey, we're nearing the end of these subsidies. Is it uh, is it too soon? Should we should we keep these going for forever <laughs> or for a little longer? <laughs> Definitely not forever. Yeah. But look, uh, nobody more than me wants to get to, wants to replace subsidies with sales for small business owners, but mm-hmm. it's just not happening at, at this early stage in the recovery. Only thirty five percent of small businesses right across Canada are at normal levels of business revenue. Wow. And that's because, of course, they have been uh, shuttered for a long time in many provinces, reopened, of course, in in most jurisdictions, but even now are facing all sorts of COVID-related restrictions um, in in tons of parts of Canada. The other thing is that governments have spent 16 months uh, telling people to stay home. And uh, and to limit their, uh, their their anything that they do outside of the house, and so and many Canadians, while that while some of us are happy to crawl out of our basements and mm-hmm. and get back to normal life, there are many who understandably are a bit hesitant to do that, and as a result, sales in small firms at the local restaurant, the uh, the the bowling alley, the movie theater, they're just not where they were. Uh, pre-pandemic, and as a result, many businesses are really struggling to stay alive. And the things we're hearing are different than just it, the the reasons they're struggling is varied. I mean, some of it's some staffing, and because there's no employees to find to work for them, uh, there's no tourists coming, so that's hurting business. There's lots of different reasons. It seems though it's also somewhat regional. Obviously, we're in BC. It's quite a lot different here in how, where we are in the pandemic and how we're living our lives day to day as opposed to Ontario, who we just started getting haircuts there, where we've, we've always had our haircuts pretty much the entire time. So, you know, it's, is, there, is there a difference when you look at this country regionally and it, should there be a regional approach maybe that we look at this? It, look, I think the, the beauty of the wage and the rent subsidy, the way that they are constructed right now, mm-hmm. is that the only the only firms that actually get any money from the subsidies are those that have had that can prove significant losses in revenues. In right. the past, when the when the programs were first constructed, it was a kind of a flat percentage uh, subsidy uh, after you hit a, a threshold of losses. So if you had a thirty percent loss, you got a seventy five percent wage subsidy. But that was ditched in the summer of twenty twenty. So right now, if your business is back to normal, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're in BC or in Ontario, you get zero uh, out of the wage and the rent subsidy, as you should if your business is back to normal levels of revenue. If you have a loss, though, the government will cover part of the wages and your rent uh, to make up the difference as those losses are most notably uh, linked to COVID. But just to put a reality check in, in place here, mm-hmm. BC, while it's done a much better job of keeping the economy open than other provinces, only 40% of British Columbia businesses are back to normal levels of mm. revenue. That's, so it's a little bit higher than the national average, but not a lot higher. It says to us that, you know, as you just pointed out, international tourists aren't there. That's mm-hmm. a huge chunk of the, of the economy. <laughs> Cruise industry is gone. Yeah. Uh, people are hesitant to get back out to some of the recreational events and, and, and large groups and mm-hmm. activities that, that were there either by policy or by choice. And as a result, the businesses that support those, those kinds of activities are really, really struggling right now. So yes, we should end wages and rent subsidies, but we shouldn't be doing it right now. We've said to the federal government, at least kick this out till November. Mm-hmm. Uh, businesses that don't need the subsidies aren't getting them anyway. But for those that do need them, it's way premature to start taking this out of the public policy framework. The economy itself, is it stronger in the States than it is here? Are they seeing a better rebound than we are? 
They are, but of course there is now another COVID uptick there. So right. that, you know, it is it is worrisome as to where that may be headed. And of course, what happens when the U.S. Uh, gets a cold, Canada sneezes. Cause so so it has an impact here too. But yes, the U.S. has been way ahead of Canada in terms of its economic rebound. The other thing that has to be kept in mind is even though some of the numbers in Canada for the economy as a whole look decent, you really have to delve a little bit more deeply. There are there have been winners and losers created by the pandemic mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the pandemic-related restrictions. And a lot of the people who have lost are smaller, medium-sized businesses mm-hmm. in retail, the restaurant sector, uh, hospitality and tourism, uh, service businesses. These are some of the businesses that have been hardest hit. Um, and so it's, you know, it is a, 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 going to be a long time before businesses fully recover. It's one of the reasons why we're we're pushing uh, both for governments to renew the subsidies and then we're asking consumers through our small business everyday campaign to try to get out there and support the local small businesses in their in their backyard. But there, you know, the weather and this dryness brings what we know of as fires across this province. 259 of them are burning right now, 11 of which began in the last two days. There are now 40 wildfires of note and the ones threatening communities, uh, a lot of them are. When it comes to this danger in BC, what kind of insurance do you need for your home? It's something that I think a lot of people are thinking about now going, do I have enough? Joining me to talk about this is Aaron Sutherland, Vice President of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Hi, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me today. No worries. Thanks for joining me. It seems to, is it, too late to even talk about this in some way? Would you know? Would an insurance company even sign a deal with somebody, given what's going on, and it's certainly related to fire? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's any any wrong time to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if your property or your home is currently threatened by wildfire, like if you're under evacuation alert, um, or if you've got you know a, a wildfire in the immediate proximity, you know, coming down the hillside behind you, it's going to be really difficult to find coverage. Um, but you know, that will pass mm-hmm. as soon as the threat passes. So if, if, you know, it's because insurance is for unforeseen events. If you've suddenly, you know, been forced outside your home due to evacuation order, you know, um, that's a little bit like, like insuring your house when it's more or less on fire. Like it, it's a little too late at that point. But um, if you aren't yet, um, which, you know, many of us are, but there's still most of the province isn't under direct threat that's a good time to have that conversation with your insurance representative mm-hmm. to find out what kind of coverage is available for you. And perhaps what kind of coverage you might already have. I mean, is there a difference between uh, a wildfire uh, and is a natural disaster and one that starts in your home or do you get treated the same way? It, no, you know, the important thing to know here is a fire is a fire is a fire from an insurance perspective. Hmm. And so you are covered uh, whether it starts inside your kitchen um, you know, in, in some kind of accident there, or if it if it comes from from outside, uh, so long as you don't intentionally uh, start a fire uh, impacting your home, you will mm-hmm. be covered, and your insurers are here to help. And so, with with what we're seeing right across this province, uh, the biggest thing I would tell people if if you've been forced outside your home uh, due to these wild these wildfires, please contact your insurer. They are here to help. Um, even if your home isn't isn't directly damaged, but you've been evacuated. Uh, insurance will will provide for things like uh, food, uh, additional clothing if needed, uh, hotel and other accommodations, things like that that, that cost you more because you've been forced out. Mm-hmm. Um, your insurance is here for that. How can they check on their insurance documents? Where is there a simple way to know whether or not they've got all what they need? 
Yeah, I mean, the easiest thing is just just start having that conversation with your insurance representative. Mm-hmm. Um, having a conversation doesn't mean you have to start a claim. It's not going to be used against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's okay. just, just you know, it, it gives you the information you need. If you don't know who your insurer is, because let's face fact, most of us don't, um, mm-hmm. if you've been evacuated, you don't even know where to start, give us a call at the Insurance Bureau. Uh, we can help put you in touch with your insurer. We can also answer some of those questions about what you likely will and won't be covered for. Um, and we can be reached at one eight four four two ask IBC. We're not an insurance company. We're not trying to sell anything. We're here to connect you with your insurer and, and, and take away some of the anxiety that could be um, occurring right now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are totally anxiety ridden right now. I mean, what, what levels of insurance are there? I mean, can you is there a max amount you can get, or is everybody kind of equal, and or is it regionalized? When you think about, you know, I'm in down here versus being in Kelowna, does that matter? How does that if impact your price of your insurance generally? Yeah, I mean, in, in, it's a good question. Insurance prices risk. So the, the higher your risk, the more you're likely going to pay. So us in the lower mainland, uh, from a wildfire perspective, relatively lower risk here for most of us. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, we'd pay a bit more for something like earthquake coverage. Uh, if you live in Kelowna, or particularly if you live in an unprotected area, like if you live outside of outside of town uh, in the interior, you don't have, you know, a fire coverage uh, or fire protection coverage, I should say, you might end up paying uh, a little bit more. Um, but again, all standard home insurance policies cover you for fire. Uh, that includes wildfire. Um, you could have different limits. You could either have, you know, full replacement costs or a set limit, depending on the specific mm-hmm. product you're purchasing. Um, but again, you are covered for wildfire. And uh, if you have concerns, the best thing you can do is, is have that conversation uh, with your insurer uh, to find out what kind of supports are available to you. Is fire different as uh, um, than it would be, say, for a flood or water damage, or is it the same? Or are those kinds of I also I always assume natural disaster was something that you know that it's always in the small print. Oh, sorry, uh, that was a natural disaster, not our fault, not 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 our problem. It's uh, talk to the government, but that's not the case. Yeah, there's often this 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 misconception that there's some kind of act of God that mm-hmm. insurance doesn't cover you for. Uh, when it comes to fire. Uh, that has been essentially the foundation for insurance for a very long time. If you think insurance came about following the London fires, the Great Chicago fires. Hmm. And so fire has been the basis of an insurance policy for for a very long time. Uh, it does differ a little bit from water damage in that regard because flood insurance uh, is often sort of an option you can purchase. It's not included in the um, like the, the basic product. Right. Uh, but for our purposes today, um, again, unless you are, unless it's an intentional arson event that you are causing on your own home, uh, your insurer is treating a fire as a fire as a fire, and you were covered in that regard. And, and again, insurers are here to help. If you've been impacted by these wildfires, please contact your insurance company. Find out what, what kind of support is available to you. I mean, it, it's devastating to see mm-hmm. uh, folks across the interior being evacuated on very short notice, literally with just their shirts on their backs. Um, insurance is here to help. You're gonna, you know, you're, you're gonna incur a lot of costs staying in a hotel. You know, food. You know, getting more clothing if you need it because it's been an, an urgent evacuation. Your insurance is here for you. And and again, the best thing you can do is just contact your insurer and, and find out what kind of support is available. One of one of the things we all worry about though when these things happen and you see a significant increase in insurance claims is next year. And when I get my insurance or any of us get our insurance, and we certainly saw that with strata insurance uh, in the last, a lot of a lot of heat in the industry related to that. Uh, can we expect a significant increase in our in our property insurance next year because of what's happening here and, and Washington and California? And it seems like 
natural disasters are happening everywhere. How does that impact insurance? I know you can't predict the exact thing, but we're seeing some significant increases over the last several years. Yeah, you know, at its foundation, no one event is going to cause an increase in insurance premiums. But Mm -hmm. it's that trend that is very, very concerning. Mm -hmm. And you hit the nail on the head. Uh, You know, we've had the West Coast of, of the United States on fire significantly every you know you think about the images you see coming out of california year after year after year and we get worse and worse hurricane seasons and you know uh, what we've seen in australia on the wildfire side and flooding in europe all of these events uh, are putting increased pressures uh, on insurers worldwide and that does put pressure uh, uh, on claims and on premiums now um, it's still a very competitive market i don't think we're going to see a big spike in, in British Columbia next year. But again, mm-hmm. the pressures are certainly there um, and the, the trends are, are very, very concerning. And I think it, it speaks to, as a society, we need to start thinking about how do we address this? You know, we're, we're thinking, when we think about our changing climate, we talk a lot about uh, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. But we also need to start thinking about the new weather reality that we face and how do we better, better protect our communities and our families from events like wildfires, mm-hmm. from flooding, from things of like this. And, and I think, frankly, we're going to need to spend a lot more money investing in infrastructure and other like defenses for our communities mm-hmm. to prevent these types of disasters from going forward. Because we know if we don't do that, they're simply going to happen more and more often. And we'll save money in the long run. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hi, quick hey. question. Mm. I have a pet. Mm. And I'm wondering if there's any kind of insurance I can get for my pet, not for visits to the vet, but Mm. in the case of a fire or something. Interesting. You know, I think, and we've heard some terrible, you know, tragedies related to pets and risk. Aaron, what what are your thoughts on that? Um, So, yeah, typically pet insurance uh, would cover um, health and health conditions and and things of that nature. Um, uh, I'm to be frank, I, I'm not entirely sure how it would work um, as it relates to you know expenses uh, for relocating because you've been impacted by a wildfire. If if you were incurring some, I suspect that would be more of like a, a livestock piece oh, under really? a farm policy. Well, if it's your dog, and I'm not sure if the caller's still on the line. If you're incurring additional, Kim, are you, cost, Kim, are you there still? I think she's gone. But yeah, no, it's so. Go ahead, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, it's like are you are you encouraging additional incurring excuse me additional costs there? Uh, it's hard for me to understand that if it's a dog or a cat or something of that nature. But if it's a horse, you know, right. you could potentially have some coverage there under a farm policy if, if you've taken it out. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, thanks, thanks, Kim. I hope that filled filled you in there and, and maybe talk to your insurance insurance agent and see what uh, what goes on there. We have got Ron from uh, Sir. No, nope, we got uh, we got Mike from Langley. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, I've got a place up in the Soyuz, and my policy expires probably in about uh, a week. And I've had the coverage for, oh gosh, four oh. years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm, I'm worried they're not going to renew it uh, when I've got the fire coming down my driveway in three or four days. Interesting. Yeah, well, that, that when you're in that sort of area of a gray area there, what do you think? Uh, what do you think, Aaron? No, this is a key question and, and something I, I'm glad we're able to address. Mm-hmm. If you are in a, if your property is under threat by an active wildfire, uh, your renewals should not be impacted. That will be extended. It's only new business. So if you don't have coverage in the first place, at that point it might be more difficult to obtain. But if you have coverage and it's renewing, uh, if you're moving things like this, uh, that should continue. 
Um, to the extent you get anything else from that from your insurance company, please give us a call at IBC. The happy to happy to help and support. But oh. renewals, uh, standard practice, those are not impacted, um, and and that coverage continues until the wildfire threat is passed. Mike, have you got you've got holiday property, or is it your place in Langley? No, I've got uh, a recreational property with uh, plans to build a home in the near future. Have you ever had? I have, a rec- I have a recreational house on the property right now that is insured, but uh, the way the fire is going, there could be a fire coming down my driveway in three or four days, and that's wow. when my insurance expires. Have you gone through this before? No, no. That's scary. Yeah. Huh? It's certainly an anxious time, uh, but yeah, yeah. Rob, uh, you sh- your your renewal shouldn't be impacted. That should continue. Um, and to the extent you're hearing anything else from your, with regards to your coverage, please do give us a call at IBC one eight four four to ask IBC. Thanks, Mike. We're taking your calls. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, taking your calls. If your questions for Aaron here from uh, the Insurance Bureau of Canada six zero four two eight zero nine eight nine eight. If you have any questions for him six zero four two eight zero nine eight nine eight. You know, Aaron. One of the things that uh, I find curious is also related to. And I talked earlier about the Strata insurance and and things like that. Is that has that whole thing calmed down uh, for the, the that industry? Have Strata's found a way to to deal with the, those massive increases that we saw about a year or two years ago? Yeah, so we have heard uh, that the strata market is, is largely stabilized. Um, you know, that's obviously very good news uh, for consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we still have some some concerning trends, particularly in British Columbia, as it relates to, you know, the maintenance of some of our older strata strata properties and making sure that, you know, we're, we're making repairs and, and keeping those adequately maintained to prevent claims happening in the first place. Because really the biggest driver of your insurance premium for stratas uh, is your claims record. Mm-hmm. And uh, where we've seen a significant increase in claims uh, as that building stock has aged, that has put pressure right across the industry. And we've seen a, we saw uh, last year uh, a reflection of that in the premiums coming forward. Uh, but uh, more recently, we've, we've heard, um, you know, the, the premiums uh, strategies are paying uh, have stabilized. We've got new insurers coming into the market, okay. um, lo- many more options now available for consumers. Uh, and I, I think uh, hopefully that, that trend will continue. It's certainly for stratas to start thinking about how they maintain their buildings, I think, too. It's sort of, we need to make sure, because a lot of stratas get water damage more than fire damage. But uh, we've got Leighton from uh, Langley. Leighton, go ahead. You got a question for Aaron. Hi, I do. I had a friend that went through a house fire. They lost their whole house, and he had a hell of a time dealing with the insurance people. So I was just wondering if there's something people can Mm. do proactively, even just at home, like before a fire, should you be doing inventories of your stuff? Should you be trying to keep receipts or things like if you add on a porch that costs $4,000, do you need to contact your insurance? So anything proactive? Yeah, you need great, to do great question, Layton. Yeah, that's you know not only dealing with the agent, how, how, what that process is like, but you know how do you prep in advance for the worst case scenario, Aaron? Yeah, some of the biggest challenges you have um, if, if you are if your home is damaged by fire or anything else is remembering uh, all, you know all your different contents that you've accumulated, and uh, you know one of the best things you can do today. We have, most of us have have smartphones. Uh, just take some photos. Um, it'll help jog your memory uh, if you do experience the worst uh, and remind yourself and also give you evidence of, of, of what you have uh, so you can work with insurers to get it all replaced. Um, you know, it's it's an extremely anxious and, and challenging time. Uh, if, you, if your home is damaged uh, by fire or by other events, it can be very difficult to recall exactly what you had. And, and just taking a few minutes today uh, to categorize, catalog, either through, through photos or what have you, but I always think the easiest thing uh, we've all got smartphones. Go take a few photos of your, uh, you know, of your home, of the various rooms. 
that will help you provide evidence to ensure of what you've what you've got, what needs to be replaced, and it'll also remind you um, of, of what you have as you go through um, putting your life back together uh, after after that occurs. Cool. Thank, Leighton, thanks for that question. Really good question. Uh, Aaron, what's that number again that people, if they are worried or, or confused by the system and they need more information, they don't, and they're maybe not, they're struggling with their agent or whatever it might be, what's the number they call, can call you guys again at? Yeah, if you've got uh, insurance questions, concerns as it relates to the wildfire or anything else, uh, please give us a call at the Insurance Bureau. Our number is 1 844 ask IBC. I just want to reiterate, we're not an insurance company. Um, we're an association, and we work on behalf of the industry to to help um, engage consumers uh, on the supports available. So if there's one thing billionaires seem to have in common, it's this need to go to space, or so far just really close to space, but not nah, not technically there. Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Elon Musk all seem obsessed with space travel, but are are there better ways they could be spending their money? I mean, seriously, here on Earth, there's got to be something. Um, here's a couple of clips for you. Every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer, because you guys paid for all of this. <laughs> so seriously, for every Amazon customer out there and every Amazon employee, thank you from the bottom of my heart. That was Jeff Bezos, and here's Richard Branson. To the next generation of dreamers, if we can do this, just imagine what you can do. Hey! Hey! I just went to half space. Uh, that, and joining me now is David Moskrop, author of Too Dumb for Democracy, a columnist and political scientist. Hey, David. How you doing? Good. So, you know, I don't know. Hey, have you seen that John Stewart parody yet? I can't even talk about what it's about, but it's got, uh, it's got. It, it, let's just say that they use uh, the rockets in an interesting way that's related to male envy. <laughs> it is a what you would describe as a, a phallic parody. Yes, there we I go. I think without getting fined. It's. It, I highly recommend it. But is that what this is all about? Really? Is that in the end? Is that what this is all about? A race to space is more about what John Stewart's pointing out, which I think people get what we're talking about here. I, uh, well, I certainly think that's got to be a part of it, but I ultimately think it's about power mm-hmm. uh, and expressions of power and influence. And you'll note from listening to those clips, what you got was Jeff Bezos telling the truth and Richard Branson telling an untruth. Bezos is right. He got to space because he extracted wealth from workers. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard Branson says, imagine what you can do. But again, that's not true if you're just trying to get through the day, which so many of us are. So you know, what, what animated me to be particularly critical about all of this was that we've sort of dressed it up as this 21st century futuristic endeavor that anyone has access to and that we're all bound up in. But it's not. It's a billionaire's plaything, and, and I think we should treat it as such. But, you know, in time and memoriam, you'd look at rich people in the past, uh, they would underwrite or go themselves uh, to find, discover the world, to do, you know, quite often the private sector is what did a lot of the discovery on our, on our earth. Um, and that's a good thing, or maybe not, some people obviously. But now they're just going, okay, we're on earth to, to find and discover, let's go to space. Is that not just, a, isn't that a good thing to discover things? Well, there's a couple of things. A lot of those sort of wealthy endeavors in previous centuries, 18th, 19th, 20th, uh, were colonial for one. Uh, so there was now, you know, I saw people pointing out the fact that, you know, they preferred when they just used to buy libraries and theaters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, that speaks to the fact that the public isn't underwriting these things and should be. 
And if you look to a lot of the space endeavors that we've seen in the last century, those were public endeavors, at least ostensibly meant to serve all of us. So one of the more compelling critiques of the sort of billionaire endeavor is that whenever it's rich folks doing it, not the rest of us, you know they're controlling it and they're doing it ultimately for a number of different reasons mm-hmm. that are, I think aren't all that philanthropic at the end of the day. These are things we should be doing collectively through the state. And the, on top of it all, billionaires can only do this because they've extracted wealth from the rest of us, from their workers. So my argument, I wrote about this yeah. recently in Canadian Dimension, my argument was they shouldn't even be able to do this because they should have never had access to that much wealth in the first place. But there are people that argue that this, the science that they force uh, their technicians and their scientists to push through, I mean, you look at the way Elon Musk's rockets land back the way, this is important science in general, just, you know, things that we don't even understand because it's so specific or it could be like the techniques that are used in something else. I don't know. Like, is that not a good thing if there's a little bit of science that, that gets, you know, used and, and it's used by other scientists for other, other purposes? Well, the, the 20th century space race gave us Teflon. So that's nice, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and Tang. I mean, and Tang. Yeah, and, and Tang. It popularized Tang. Everyone, you know, everyone. Yeah. But I mean, I guess uh, my pushback would be to say, one, could we not pursue that publicly and collectively with, with the specific interest of the state in ways that we can direct democratically? Mm-hmm. And two, what specific technology are we talking about here? Because I see a lot, I've seen that argument plenty, but then mm-hmm. I say, okay, well, what, what are we talking about? And usually the answer I get is, well, you, we can't even possibly know. And I suppose, fair enough, but my pushback on that is we have a direct existential threat to humankind right now in the form of climate change. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that every last marginal bit of effort we've got should be directed towards dealing with that rather than pursuing this sort of exit Earth strategy, right. which seems to be part of this billionaire endeavor. And so that's the other thing I'm worried about as a sort of outside concern, which is the more we start looking to the stars as not just a place of exploration, but of a place of, of security, I think the less we're going to look ah. uh, at home and think the, uh, one of the same thing. So you think there might be something nefarious going on here that these guys want as far as sec- our, our security and, and intel? Well, I think there's a, there's a, a I don't think it's like a, a conspiracy theory, although, you know, these days it, it's getting harder and harder to push back against some conspiracy theories. You know, back in the day, you used to be able to look mm-hmm. at someone and just say, okay, that's tinfoil hat stuff. Right. And then, of course, then we hear what the NSA is spying. And then the U.S. military sort of comes out and says, UFOs? Actually, maybe. And these days, you can't even dismiss crackpot theories like you used to be able to. Well, you look Those at the, the, the camera technology, and you can see just on Google Earth, you can go, oh, my God, I can, <laughs> see, I can see everything in my backyard. And that's what public. I mean, so there must be stuff that we don't know about. It's just, it's just terrifying. But, I mean, I think part of it is more that we are making a bet, a climate bet on space. Because they think mm-hmm. people saying, well, we're going to, was it, was it Musk or Bezos or Branson who said we should move, I think it was. Does it uh, matter? <laughs> power out to space. It was one of them who said we should move polluting industries and power generation out to space. Oh, I see. So put right? a and nuclear so power a plant on, 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 on should, the moon or something. And we should mine there and so on uh-huh. and so forth. And so, you know, I'm getting the sense that there's an argument that we can externalize a lot of our problems by going to space. Never mind that the space industry is extraordinarily heavily polluting when you're sending these things up mm-hmm. in the first place, right? right? Uh, and extraordinarily expensive to do it. Um, that, that we're sort of looking and saying, okay, we're going to solve our, our, our climate problems by externalizing them to space. We don't have that kind of time or runway. Like, come on. <laughs> We've got a decade. 
to get it together, and, and we're doing moonshots, and I find it deeply disconcerting. Well, you could argue, though, that Elon Musk has created a great battery technology, and you could say that uh, Amazon is getting rid of big, giant big, stop, big shops that, and malls and driving around because you get everything stuff delivered to your home now. So they're both doing good things to the environment, aren't they? Well, the models are driven on, on production consumption. I mean, they're not making their money because things are lasting. Mm-hmm. They're making their money because we're, there's a huge amount of turnover in producing goods that we don't actually really need. Right. Uh, and then some of them we need, but most, let's be honest, there are a lot of stuff we don't yeah, need. Yeah. Uh, and those things are delivered, and they're packaged with a great deal of yes. packaging. I mean, you can have a single toothbrush sent to your house. Mm-hmm. I mean, during the pandemic, I'm sure lots of people had essentials delivered. And, and of course, we... We like that when we're in a pandemic, but day-to-day, it's not a great model. It also puts a lot of businesses out of work and puts a lot of people up against the wall and undermines uh, their security and their well-being. So there's all kinds of externalities that we don't want. So at the end of the day, what, you know, I see this as a huge expression of power and a lot of sort of you know, hand-waving at promises that I don't think will ever be fulfilled. Is sometimes too, is too much money too much? Is that what's going on here? These guys have lost their minds because they have so much money that they're just like they've gone over the edge i cannot fathom what i would do if i had a million dollars let alone <laughs> 30 40 50 billion dollars whatever they've got i mean at some, because but at some point it's not, it's not even money anymore it's power right yeah. by the time we're talking about the order of magnitude of a billion dollars it has nothing to do with with money because there's just nothing you can do with that other than again you know pursue these absurd uh adventures and misadventures it is the power that that represents that I find deeply troubling because all of a sudden you can direct the world in ways that we should be collectively deciding as an individual. And that's what I find so deeply disconcerting about this thing. Here's a simple solution. Why don't we just tax them? We'll tax them big time, uh, tax the rich, get the cash and use the cash for good, not evil. What about that? A flat rate on wealth, maybe, you know, a flat t- tax on, on rich, tax on the medium rich, uh, and get some cash out of these uh, people to use for the purposes of all society. What about that? Well, I'm all for it. I'm also <laughs> all for upending a system that produces them in the first place uh, and, and redistributing that power and, and wealth to, to workers. And there is actually really practical ways of doing that, you know, worker-owned co-ops, mm-hmm. uh, employee stock uh, plans. That, that's a model that's in the U.K. and the U.S. and has been there for a long time. Uh, I did see somebody point out on the Internet another solution, oh, yeah? which is to allow billionaires to go to space but not allow them to come back. <laughs> So we're going from selfish billionaire conversation to an incredible act of generosity, an endurance one. Our next guest just turned 24, and to celebrate, she ran 100 kilometers. Like, what? Kaylin Head joins me now. She's an endurance runner. Hey, Kaylin. Hi. How's it going? So what What are you doing? Why? This was on your birthday. Why? Are you supposed to have cake and cookies and, and maybe <laughs> 24 a beer? I don't know. Why were you running 100 kilometers? Um, well, this is actually the fourth year that I've run for my birthday. Mm-hmm. I don't really like to get presents, so it started as a 5K fun run that I organized with my friends. Yeah. And then last year, as a response to the pandemic, I decided to run 100 kilometers instead because we wouldn't all be able to gather. So uh, this is actually the second year that I've run 100 kilometers on my birthday. That's crazy. You're up in Chilliwack, right? Yeah. Is that where you ran in that area, like at the school, or where did you run? Yeah, this year I ran a 50-kilometer loop around Chilliwack, and then I ran another <laughs> 50 kilometers to finish on the Rotary Stadium in Abbotsford. How, now, this is called, 100 kilometers is called a super, what's it called? 
An ultra marathon. Ultra marathon. How does that work? How do you actually even do that? Do you just nonstop or do you get to have like go for a latte after 5K and then start again? Or <laughs> how, how does running 100K work? Um, well, I ran pretty much straight through. I stopped at like bathrooms. My physio was super awesome and opened their doors at 5 a.m. for me because I started at midnight. Wow. So their office was along the route, so I would eat while I was running and stop for the washroom when I needed to, but I just ran from midnight till about 11.30. So almost so 11.30 in the morning? Yeah. So it's almost, almost 12 hours of just running. Yeah. That's crazy. So uh, how do you even like train for that? You, you're obviously doing running all the time, but I mean... Do you you can't practice running a hundred kilometers like that's you, how do you even train for a hundred kilometer run? And this is your second year doing it, so probably a piece of cake this year. But when you first did it, you're like, okay, I'm going to run hundred k. How do you even? Yeah, get I there? definitely trained a lot more this year than I did last year. I learned some lessons. Ah. I'm pretty lucky. I'm a nanny right now, so I got to run with the kids. I just put them in the stroller. Oh, and yeah. It was a bit of resistance. Training. Yeah, yeah. It makes you even stronger. Yeah. It makes you even stronger. Yeah. Yeah. So you, how, do you actually, to know that you can do 100 kilometers, do you only, if you get to 50 kilometers, you know you're good to go? Or what's the magic that n- lets you know that you can do 100? Um, I ran up to 65 kilometers this year and then left the rest to fate. <laughs> how, you did this because of COVID. Uh, it's a fundraiser. We'll get to that. But um, we're, this year is a bit different than last year. So were there people able to cheer you on or was there more people involved, people that were closer to you this year that you, so you didn't have to worry so much? Yeah, it was really awesome this year. So I fundraised for Special Olympics. So mm-hmm. I got to see some of my athletes and they got to come to the finish line and cheer me on. And then I also had five friends and my physiotherapist who joined me for the full 100 kilometers on bike and by foot. So they never left my side. So you had a, you had the ins- people to inspire you as you made your way through this. Yeah. And so this money was for Special Olympics. That's what you were raising this money for. Yeah. Did you ever, when you were running it, though, did you ever feel like, okay, I can't do it. I got I to gotta stop. I got to stop. Um, I definitely cried a lot. Right cried around a lot. 90 kilometers. Oh, my. Yeah, I had a little bit of a exhausted meltdown, but... I knew I could do it because I did it last year. It's just an unbelievable amount of pain, I think. Oh, my God. Mind over matter, right? Yeah, yeah. I knew I could get there. And then once it was over, you just recover (laughs) over the next couple of days. I was going to say, you wake up the next morning. I mean, I do 10 kilometers. I'm, like, out for, like, three days. But 100, how does your body react to that? Um, It was pretty bad the day after. I was pretty sore hobbling around. (laughs) Yeah. But um, me and my team went to Seashelt, so I've been soaking my blistered feet in the ocean. Nice. It's the perfect weather to do that, for sure. So yeah, it's how, how much did you raise? I'm just short of $17,000. Wow. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. And if people want to donate, that money's going to Special Olympics BC, and they're going to use, do you know what they're going to use it for? Is it just going into a general fund, or is there something special they're going to use it for? Um, Special Olympics is really awesome because they keep the costs down super low for the athletes. So it just kind of goes towards their programs as a whole and like all of their different sports programs for equipment and facilities and training and opportunities for the athletes. Okay. Yeah. So it's just kind of broad to the whole province. So you've been doing this for six years, but six years, I think you said, but two years as the 100K. Are you going to do 100K again next year for your 25th? I think so. Yeah. 
Now you're now you're now you're committed. You can't. Uh, yeah, I'm hooked. Yeah. You're hooked, and now you've said it on the radio, so you got to do it. So. Yeah. So yeah. If people want to donate, they go to your GoFundMe page if they want to give you some more cash. Yeah, that would be awesome. So how do they find GoFundMe.com, and then just type in Kalen's Birthday Marathon? Is that what you get? Yeah, it's under Kalen's Birthday Marathon for Special Olympics BC. All right, Kalen, thanks very much. That's really wonderful what you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks. Take care.